Welcome to Wonder Tour with Derek Cobb and Drew Perot. Hi, I'm Derek. And I'm Drew. We are on a journey to become better leaders by touring fantastic worlds and inspiring lore by going on a wonder tour. We connect leadership concepts to story context because it sticks to our brain better. You can find out more at wondertourpodcast.com. Derek, get ready to traverse the mines of Moria and take on the Balrog and the Urukai and everything that Sauron has to throw at us. It's time to go into part two of the Fellowship of the Ring. We're talking a little bit deeper game theory here and Frodo's decision to break up the Fellowship. Number one, fire phases on that Balrog. <laughs> Did you know that Patrick Stewart was also uh, approached for the role of Gandalf? <laughs> so anyway, I wanted to open up again with something fun from the lore of Lord of the Rings. Uh, welcome back to Wonder Tour. This is the uh, second half of Lord of the Rings, Fellowship of the Ring, and we are excited to talk today uh, continuing on our magnanimous leadership uh, binge that Wonder Tour really has been about uh, from the very beginning, and uh, because we are trying to define right what that what what is a magnanimous leader because uh, magnanimous is just a word but there's a whole thing there and that uh, man or woman is a strategist they very much are a strategist at heart and they understand the basic concepts of game theory as it, you know, either I, I want to say more of an intuitive sense. I think they have some basic uh, understanding of the mathematical sense, but we're not going to touch on mathematics here because we won't, we don't want to, we don't want to, uh, you know, disenfranchise, you know, uh, anybody with the, the discussion. We want to make sure that this is digestible and this is able to be grasped. So I'm going to, leave it to you drew to kind of you know follow on that but that's kind of where we're starting at i like the discussion of mathematician there because the magnanimous leader is by no means a mathematician it's nice to if you have some of those tools in the tool belt but you do not need them at all to be a magnanimous leader in fact game theory can be well understood from a conceptual standpoint without any mathematics and that's what we're aiming to do today is to continue to to work without any mathematical understanding of game theory so let's move on let's do a little bit of a recap of game theory and let's do it in the scope of the ending so in part one we dove into the decision that was made at the council of rivendell where they, they decided to send this small team, the Fellowship, with Frodo being the ring bearer. That, that's their initial grand plan as to how they're going to defeat Sauron. So we talked about how there's a dominant strategy at play here where Boromir comes out guns blazing and he wants to use the ring and try to defeat Sauron. 
well, number one, we've seen that used in the past and it failed when Isildur picked it up and and tried to to wield the ring himself. Um, others have tried and and been corrupted by it. We also just talked about how, from a feasibility standpoint, brute force is probably not the best approach to attack Sauron. So the dominant strategy, meaning the strategy that that always will produce better results for the good guys, is to go small. They go with the humble approach. We're going to have a hobbit carry a ring, and we're going to have a couple guys guarding him. Sweet. <laughs> and 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 that's not just it's not just that. There's also these other characters that have a serious role in this story. But that's kind of like the core of it is we're going to have this fellowship that's going to carry forward the ring with the most humble of all the Hobbit carrying the ring as not to get corrupted by it. So let's move to. Like yeah, it's kind of like a startup a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, keep going. Okay. So there's a decision that's made at the end after there's this battle. They have like this orc leader and the orcs come in here and they they kill Boromir. It's this grand battle. It is really fun to watch, honestly. That's a really cool battle scene. There's no huge battle scenes in the in the first movie. There's no, you know, huge fronts fighting each other and castles being sieged and stuff like that. But you still get some awesome sequences, including this one. Um, it's a you know, classic way that Sean Bean dies in a movie uh, with Boromir. And at this point, Frodo makes the call to break off from the rest of the Fellowship for the good of everybody. So let's, Derek, talk me through the game theory of Frodo's decision here. Well, I mean, I think you start, you know, we would talk about last time, in last episode about how because you don't know how it's going to go even playing on it, the using the weak weakness strategy which is basically you're avoiding fighting you're not going to do you're going to try to avoid fighting as much as possible you're going to try to run as much as possible um you still had to make you don't know what kind of threat you're going to encounter even when you do that little bit of fighting so you tried to go with an overall uh, flexible team, right? So you got all these different uh, personalities, et cetera. Um, and I think it served its purpose as they went through the mines of Moria. And then you get to the end of the fellowship um, and you realize at that point that perhaps that mechanism has served its purpose. And the long game of playing weak and playing no fight has to continue but the tactics now have to change um, mostly because I think it draws too much attention. Right. And so we kind of transition here into a predator prey game. Um, do we not? I think that we do. So that, well, this is a good time to introduce a sub model of what I would call a sub model of game theory. So the nice thing about game theory is that it has a lot of kind of conceptual constructs that you can use to understand decision making. And then there's also this grab bag of models that already exist that people have come up with, like the Battle of the Sexes or the Prisoner's Dilemma or the Predator and Prey model here, where you can kind of draw from these. And it's not to say that every situation falls into one of these grab bag of models that are already existing, but it is to say that you can use those models as a base point to create your similar models. 
So I think what you're saying here is that we might be similar to a predator and prey model. So let's just talk about a predator and prey model. So in a predator and prey model, you have two players. You have the predator, you have the prey. So they, in a simplified model, they each have two options. The predator can, can actively search for prey or can passively wait for the prey to come to it. The prey can actively you know, move, be on the move to avoid the predator or can be passive in this situation to avoid the, um, to try to avoid the predator. What happens is you end up with a situation where the predator has a dominant strategy, generally, depending on how you look at it, but it has a dominant strategy of being active. We see that that's what's happening with Saruman. I'm gonna say that Saruman's a predator in this situation, and it's not necessarily like active versus passive, I wouldn't say, because of course, um, it's not just a, it's not just a predator and prey game. There's also other elements involved here that I'm not sure what the submodel would be, like where <laughs> there's a MacGuffin model potentially. Have we talked about MacGuffins on here at all? Uh, no, no, I don't think so. Um, <laughs> we haven't even yeah. talked about Lucky Charms, but I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I don't know uh, MacGuffin at all. So if if uh, yeah, if this it, is a MacGuffin model kind of. So the MacGuffin model is it's a MacGuffin is a concept. I don't know where it originates from, unfortunately, but it's a concept in stories. A lot of times in movies of you have this object that progresses the narrative along like one person has it the other person has to get it and so oh. it creates it automatically kind of creates this conflict now i would say that the the in my personal opinion i'm not like i didn't go to school for you know cinematography or whatever but <laughs> or, or storytelling or creative writing or anything like that i wouldn't I don't think the ring is really a MacGuffin, but I'm just using it's the best term I can come up with here where like there's a MacGuffin thing going on where one party, you know, clearly one player has the piece, the key piece of the game. So the other player is incentivized to chase them. Yeah, I mean, I think that's where the predator prey kind of breaks down a little bit because, um, you know, there is no passive choice, you know, because they tried that earlier on. They're like, we can keep the ring in Rivendell. And they're like, uh, uh-uh, we're not keeping the ring in Rivendell right that's not a choice it has to be destroyed it has you to be eliminated from the game well in that scenario it actually works out perfectly because the we we know that in a predator prey model the dominant strategy for the predator is to go active and if they stay if the prey stays passive in that situation um, and the predator goes active they're going to be screwed <laughs> that's a really bad situation they're eventually like rivendell is strong but it's not stronger than all of sauron's goons that's right. So you got to be a moving target. You have to be a moving target. But I think it's interesting here is, you know, when you got predator prey going on, you're really looking at numbers. Typically, you know, when you're talking like natural world, you know, you've got the numbers. And so the caribou, most of them get away. You know, they're most of them are running, et cetera. Right. Um, but not all of them get away. And you don't really have a ton of predators, you know, in the in the if you do, then you have imbalance, right? Um, and so that's what, what's interesting about this story, actually, is because there are actually a ton of predators, but they stay clustered most of the time. You notice that? They're not really that spread out. They're mostly in clusters, and I think that's where they fail. Uh, and then that gives the chance for the prey, i.e. the hobbits, to kind of sneak through right under their noses. Um, so it's a really good example of game theory. It's just slight twist on predator prey yeah well and that's where we were kind of coming up with that it's it's not necessarily the active passive 
that's like well there that is at play but that's just an obvious like we understand how that hap- how that works um that if the predator is going to be active then the prey should also be active because it's going to give it a better chance potentially um but in this situation i think we can look at it in terms of like where we started to last episode of going big or going small so maybe instead of active and passive we're looking at going big and going small so talk to me about the going small strategy or kind of like how do you play out of a weak hand in this situation because they have in one way they have a strength that we'll talk about next which is they have knowledge about the location of the ring but in another way they have they, they definitely are playing the weaker hand they don't have the they don't have the number of guys or the power or they don't have the ring race they don't have any anything really in terms of power and they don't have any unity across the good guys so that that is uh incomplete information right so we're talking beijing games uh you know uh you know and i want to i want to make sure we probably introduce the fact that both sides have incomplete information which is why we felt beijing games uh, are a good fit here um so talk to me about beijing games what is it i mean what's the difference between a normal game and a beijing game so, I mean, the one thing that sticks out to me about Beijing games is a game where you don't have complete information. You don't know what all pieces are available. You don't know all the rules. You don't know um, you don't know the the capabilities of the pieces on the board. Uh, for instance, the best one I can think of here is you don't know how capable a hobbit is. Uh, you think you do. You think they're just a tiny little guy that you can just beat up. And that's true. <laughs> but apparently, uh, let's say endurance. You know, If I go back to my RPG days, like I was in last episode, you think about endurance of a character and how many hits it can take before it, it uh, gets knocked out. You know, Let's just use knocked out because uh, you can always come back in an RPG. But, um, you know, I mean... The hobbits really take a lot of hits in this one, and they're, I mean, they're just eating just little bits of food, and they're making it through. Um, ultimately, in the end, you know, I'm not talking into the other movies, but I am a little bit of projecting. Um, the capability of a hobbit it, has been underestimated by Sauron, right? Yeah, so that's that's actually really interesting. You're looking at it from the flip side. So that, yeah, in a Bayesian game, in a normal game, we have. Um, we can estimate or at least approximate what the benefit is. Like we can kind of look at each situation and be like, okay, if Sauron goes big and the the good guys go big, then it'll it'll end kind of like this. But in a Bayesian game, the idea is that there's like a range of things that could happen and we don't actually know what the results are going to be. The idea is that, like, we don't have a good grasp on the moves that either group is going to make. Like, there's multiple moves, many... It's not just that there's many moves, because there can be many moves in a normal game, but there's, like, a finite benefit to making each move in the end, or a finite result to each one. The idea is that we don't actually know what the results are going to be. And so you've kind of... What I was thinking is that, initially, we don't we don't know what Saruman's going to do, necessarily, here. We can see, like, he's he's burning the ants and he's doing all this you know this stuff here and they end up doing something crazy actually right to defeat saruman but in the two towers which we're of course inevitably going to touch on a little bit here um but what you are coming up with is actually more interesting and that's it's that really sauron thinks 
he has a he has his finger to the pulse of the opponent's strategy. He thinks he knows who they are. And so he's going to make a blunder because he thinks he knows who they are. And he mischaracterizes the Hobbit. He thinks that he's playing and maybe we could say this. Can we simplify it and say maybe he thinks he's playing a normal game where the results are obvious and like the, the active strategy for him is just dominant and it's just going to win. But he's the mistake that he's making is he's not understanding that there's more than one game board essentially that's being played here or that, that could be played here. Essentially, there's there's potentially a different game board in which the Hobbit has different characteristics than he thinks that they do. Totally. I mean, and that's where I think that you're you're heading in the right direction, which the game, the, the game does eventually split into two uh, separate boards, one where Frodo is doing his thing with Sam getting the ring to Mordor into Mountain Doom. That's one game. And then the other game is the overt game. And I, I love this because this is how I, I typically play the game too, which is I have an overt strategy. I also have a long game in the background. It's kind of like a background thread. And on a computer, you have a background process or something, and you know it's going to take a long time, but you're like, if this background process goes through, the payoff is huge, right? And so you tend to feed this background process and you're like, as soon as this thing completes and it matches up with what is going on in the front game. So I, I like to think of a front game and a back game. So however you think about that, two boards, I think that's cool. Uh, I'm good with that. Two playing boards. So at some point, this was a single plane chess game. We had the the Nazgul running around, you know, the guys with the black faces. That was the first the first real game, and then it starts to split off um, into this more parallel game because the the good side realizes, hey, we got to amass an army here. We've got to uh, you know kind of bring in more forces, and that's kind of that's where the game kind of splits, doesn't it? It does. There's one. <laughs> There's one thing that always seems to happen here in Middle Earth or just in general in Tolkien lore. It's that whether we're dealing with Sauron or we're dealing with Morgoth, just any of these prime evils essentially in the world, they tend to make the assumption that the good guys will not be able to unite against them because they're constantly their long game is is they're the, they're evil. So their long game is sowing these seeds of of discontentment and and arguments between the good guys so we see that there's a there's a game that's being played here right so like we see some of the men a lot of the men in this world or the humans are choosing to side with sauron like the eastern humans are siding with sauron right so he's he's breaking them apart and he's also kind of making the assumption that the riders of rowan are not going to you know, are not going to play ball with the rest of the humans here and that the elves of Rivendell aren't going to come to support the humans. And, and usually they would be right. <laughs> and the evil would win in that situation. So he's kind of also making a bet there. That's some, some information that nobody has right now, right in the game is, are we going to be able to unite or are we not going to be able to? So there's incomplete information about the hobbits, um, about who the hobbits are, what they can do. There's incomplete information about the um, about the kind of the factions of who's on what side. I mean, there's incomplete information about Sauron's faction too. We don't know 
we don't know all of the the tricks that he's got in store at any point really here either. I think that's perfect. And if you think about what um, Elrond, uh, I think he set the the tone there when he said, "Man is a joke." Uh, he didn't say it exactly like that. <laughs> that'd be like the urban version of Lord of the Rings. You know, man is a joke. He's uh, you know, anyway. Um, but no, but he he had no faith in man. Right. And uh, so nobody really does. And so even Sauron picks up on that. Right. And it's funny because one example, and I think this is a teachable moment right here, that we got to remember that we've got to have values over examples. Sometimes we've got to remember that, you know, being idealistic with your values is not necessarily a bad thing if you stay humble in that. And you realize that you want to ascribe to uh, a higher, you know, I would say plane of existence as a leader. You should do that because you can't necessarily be like, well, well, they, you know, they failed. So I have to. No, that's not that is not the way it has to be. You you don't have to make the same choice that is it is Ildor. What is it? <laughs> sorry. <laughs> Isildur. Isildur. Yeah, sorry. So. You know, Isildur, you, you didn't have to make the same choice he made. Aragorn shows that, you know, obviously he's very counter uh, to that and he he flips all that. And I think that's that's a miscalculation on Sauron's side. Uh, the lack of unity is another uh, miscalculation. You know, so there's a mess up on the persona of man as well. I think that mm, that was another good. one. Another key mistake he made was mischaracterizing what man was going to do because if you think about it, he had the steward of gondor in place right uh later on and you know that guy was definitely running things downhill uh <laughs> he just totally miss miss uh you know i would say judged or projected i think sauron was working on that guy but again he underestimated the fact that aragorn was going to come back out of being a ranger and Right. And 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 do well, just think did. about it. Think about it in two towers with Theoden. Right. Theoden's just a shell of himself. And Sauron and Saruman are are manipulating the humans. I think the point you made there is perfect. And that point <clears throat> that point is is well taken for me, because to me, you know, whatever in, in Lord of the Rings, there's this personification of evil. I love that. It's it's really tangible and like you can see it and you can actually kind of feel how. It feels like evil in the in in our world interacts similarly to the way that this personified evil works. So I love how we've talked about before. I, didn't, I haven't mentioned it in this uh, in this episode yet, but how Tolkien meant for this to be kind of an English creation narrative to a, to an extent, like how we got here, right? Middle Earth is supposed to be like kind of our predecessors or whatever. Um, this is just this, you know, it's it's a myth about how we got here, but he just made it up in the 20th century. And it's it's really freaking cool. But there's there's this constant um, <laughs> evil always misclassifies. Not always. Well, well, most of the time is right. But evil tends to misclassify humans. Right. It's like if we take the evil's viewpoint on the game, then humans will always fail. They'll continue to make the same mistakes that they've made before. You know, they're going to use they're going to try to use the ring. They're going to bring their own downfall. They're going to give the ring back to Sauron and he's going to he's going to rule the world again. But what we actually 
see in reality is that humans, there are times when humans, usually by coming together, are able to transcend that and they're able to to come past that, right? They're able to actually not wield the ring this time. And Aragorn, you know, oh man, no, nothing better than the the crowning of the king ceremony at the end of <laughs> Return of the King there. You Aragorn is just this this awesome leader who is able to put down the ring and not not pick up the ring and make the sacrifices that need to be made, do the hard things that need to be done and he completely outduels Sauron in that way. It, you know, obviously Frodo outduels Sauron, but but Aragorn and Gandalf also, and the rest of the company tend to do it as well. Now, let me transition here because I'm I'm coming up, I'm realizing that maybe the way we should talk about this is it's not that there's only there's not only two players in this game, and that makes it more complicated, right? So previously we kind of been talking about it like good guys, bad guys type of game being played. Well, there's actually more parties involved here right there's there's gondor and there's rohan and there's there's the elves of rivendell and there's the wood elves and there's all these different parties that we're going to see uh have a different role to play here and so the 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 normal game is kind of blown to smithereens because we no longer even if we had certainty about about what one party might do or what the dominant strategy might be we have this information that just hidden information, essentially, right? It's hidden in time. It'll only be revealed later as to what's actually going to happen. So what do we do in a Bayesian game or a kind of a hidden information game when we have a weak hand, Derek? Let's talk about some of the approaches we can take to help ourselves succeed. Are you talking about in in context of, let's say, business or personal? Let's talk about business first. But I think that, like, if you're talking about just the general mainstays of the game, trying to understand, you know, a strategy... Let's talk about business first, but then we can apply it to personal. Yeah, so I think one way to do it in business is to first put on a brave face and you've really got to position your strongest pieces uh, on your side out front. Um, In business, you know, nobody gets wiped out, right? I mean, as long as you're operating ethically, as long as you are following the policies of your organization, um, no one's getting wiped off the board. And so it's not a zero sum game. It's actually a game where it really is time that is running out. Um, I, that's the way I think about it. I don't know what game that. So you're talking internal for. business. You're not talking like competitive markets, right? You're talking internally, totally. internally yeah. within a within a business. You know, there are competing right. directions of where we should go, of yep. what the culture should be. These different things. Th- these come up in every organization, big or small. Obviously, you're going to have these these debates over. You know, should we make this deal or that deal? Should the company specialize? Should should this be our competitive advantage or should that be our competitive advantage? Maybe when you're up and coming. Yeah, because uh, I mean, I, I don't talk about the other ones because I think so much there's so much marketing out there, right? There's so much about marketing, advertising, sales. The Internet is like chock full of that. And what it's not chock full of, in my opinion, is really good meaty advice, uh, thoughts um, on how to how to navigate culture. You're giving you're given these pieces, this amount of resources and you're supposed to make a big change. You're supposed to, you're a Frodo, you're a Frodo, right? And you're, you've been, you've been given like a huge task. 
it's usually not a destructive task like getting rid of the ring um but it it can be a long journey in which you take a multitude of steps that build on each other um that will build your team along the way and accomplish a huge goal um very much so and so that's that's where i draw the parallels you know in the business side uh right or wrong uh i'm not sure but so you you like that kind of frame up where we're at with that i think like let's let's take this back quickly to lord of the rings so what we talked about a few minutes ago was how sauron can he kind of makes a mistake by sim- oversimplifying the game and he thinks we're playing more of a normal game he thinks less of the less of the outcomes are are unsure he's pretty confident that by going the brute force route he can win but the mistake that he makes is not understanding the hidden information he completely fails to understand the the way that the the hidden information is going to be unveiled whether it be about the the strength of the hobbits kind of the internal strength of the hobbits the light that guides them um, or whether it be the fact that that Aragorn is going to unite the men and and Gandalf is going to bring the you know the men of Rohan over the wall and stuff like that men and women I think of Rohan because I'm pretty sure the women ride as well there um, but so I think it starts with number one is study the game right and this is something that like when you have the advantage or when you you perceive you have the advantage like Sauron you start to study the game less. You kind of think that you simplify the game, you have it drawn up on the wall or on your whiteboard, and you just kind of assume, like, this is the game. And that's exactly when you get taken over, is when you failed to study the game and you've oversimplified the game. Because we know humans have a tendency to oversimplify things. Our brains can only hold so many variables in memory <laughs> at a given time. And so it's a lot easier for us to, to you know, the, the old substituting questions, right? We substitute a complicated question for an easier one, which is helpful in understanding, but is not useful usually in actually determining the solution because it's just helpful in coming up with a primitive model of looking at something an approximation of what it could be like but we fail when we assume that that approximation is reality it is how it's going to work and that's what happens with sauron here is he assumes that his approximation of how it should work is how it's actually going to work so his first mistake is he's his his big strategic mind and sauron saruman's also saruman is like just as he falls to the darkness, just forgetting all of his strategic muscles, it seems like here, and it's just kind of like letting everything fall to the wayside in in the name of just power. Yeah, I think that's a great place to bring in the thought of, you know, one way that the 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 rules can end up being oversimplified is when you have you have a product, you have at the time you have a wide moat. And you just build, build, build all around it, and you devolve into you're you're just doing pure project management. You're acquiring a resource, you're spending money, you're executing a project, done, right? And you end up starting to live in this like uh, vacuous state, basically, where you know you think you've got it all figured out, and you're just executing, 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 and that whole thing, though, it, it kind of neglects what's going on outside of you. And if you're in an industry where your wide moat is shrinking to a narrow moat, where your competitors are actually starting to out- outstrip you, 
you have not been paying attention to that. You're making a Sauron level mistake here. And you're not paying attention to the fact, I mean, look at the orcs. They are so unevolved. They actually dug them out of the ground, right? So they haven't changed the orc game in a long time. The orcs have been orcs for a long time, if you're not picking that up. And they're not very smart. And so they need a lot of command and control. And that's the weakness of the orc army. They don't really put anything into their people. They're like, here are the tools. These are commodity tools. And I can think a lot about, we talked about this last episode in Doctor Strange, about how you have the arcane and you need to be bringing in the arcane and you have the commodity. And I think here, you know, to contrast why you win games and why you lose games, you have the growth mindset has to undergird when you're playing the game. We want, we're, we're now shifting into a magnanimous leader understands how to play games, right? Um, and so, but he has to have it all undergirded by the growth mindset and invest in his people. And uh, that's the game changer, isn't it? It is. So that studying the game is, is step one. And there's different ways that, that that studying the game can help you play it out, right? You can see that you have a skills gap. That's something that Sauron never even attempts to reconcile, partially because, again, it's the personification of evil and evil tends to pull everything to itself and try to make everything, try to pull everything into this, into this, you know, blob, essentially, of pure evil. And so it makes everything like itself and wants to command and conquer everything, whereas good, in my mind, good is about is about pulling people towards the light, but making everybody unique. And that's what we see on the good side, right? Is these characters are all just brilliantly unique, all bring their own skills to the table, and they need those skills in order to be able to solve the problems. So there is a, there's a skill game there that can potentially be played. I, th- I think for me in my life, <laughs> it's not just enough to study the game because it'll just like whatever you just learned will evaporate into the ether. You have to write the game down as much as you can. And I'm not saying you need to write it down in, you know, a game theory sort of a way and try to make it mathematical or anything like that. It's just, we have to find ways to write down the game, right? You need to understand your external environment, your internal environment, your cultural challenges, your, you know, your competitors challenges. You need to understand if, again, all this is in business, right? But you have to figure out, you have to write all of those things down and try to understand what, how is, how are the other players going to be, how are they most likely to play this game and what, what how does it allow you to exploit a potential information advantage you have right because there's always information advantages in business so we can look at um you know an information advantage and, and an information advantage can be a skill set right it's like we actually have this skill set that allows us to create value and can expand our moat so we have to figure out figure out where your information advantage is. And if you don't have an information advantage, then there are opportunities at a low cost potentially to pick up information advantage. Do you agree with that statement? Yeah, I mean, and I think that you got to be careful in staying in the information cycle for too long. Not, I mean, you didn't say this, obviously, but I've I've lived that for sure is that um, you can stay in the information gathering cycle for too long, which is why, you know, you want to be trying to apply and demonstrate that knowledge that you're, or sorry, the information that you're bringing in, uh, as, you know, soon after bringing it in, you need to start experimenting with it and really understanding that 
uh, getting application experience with it. Um, so I'm trying to think of uh, that with Lord of the Rings, and we don't really see the tech levels change in Lord of the Rings per se. I mean, yes, someone whips out a magical spell that no one else has seen. So that's those are most of the wow moments, aren't they? That's pretty much the tech. I think Aragorn, we see some immense growth in Aragorn. We also see it in Gimli and Legolas, right? I mean, we see growth. Maybe it's not tech tech growth, right? But it is a it is character growth, leadership growth. Um, you really see, like, in, in Sam and Frodo, their ability to face their fears, right? They become brave, courageous. They weren't that way at the beginning of the journey. They had to be put in situations where their skills were tested so that they could grow there. So I think we want to study the game first. We want to write it down. And then, for me, early plays are important, right? So we saw this at the Council of Rivendell. A lot of these early plays set in motion the rest of the trilogy for Lord of the Rings. The early plays, giving yourself... You know, making sure that, like you said, the information advantages is more important earlier on in the cycle because the the better you can understand the game and kind of. And so one thing we haven't even mentioned here <laughs> is that Bayesian games are probability based. So it's no longer a calculation of who, you know, what the best solution is going to be. It's all probabilities. So you're basically deciding what you're going to do based on what you think the probability is that the opponents are going to make certain moves. So in this situation, you have the early plays are really important in Bayesian games because it's going to put you in a position where it, it games are, you know, a lot of the time the way that we look at these game boards is like in pieces, right? Or in parts. You're not like playing the whole game at once. The whole game is not just that we set out from Rivendell with this fellowship, right? There's going to be points that we can pivot in the future, but the fellowship was a really good starting point because it allowed us to pivot in smart ways going forward where now we can have part of the fellowship go lead the the war efforts now try to get bring people together and then the other part of the fellowship can go incognito and try to you know move closer to mortal right they're going to have one one part of the fellowship create the disturbance and the other part of the the fellowship slip in the side door of the club it's just like on Interstellar, honestly, <laughs> if I take it back to Interstellar for a second. But please you know, do. You, yeah. Well, if you think about the Endeavor and having several Rangers and several several landers, um, you have some options there. You, there are some things you don't have options on, which are like the embryos. You know, you have to keep that going. Life support, you have to keep that going. But, um, you know, you're right. You start out at the beginning with some options. And I think that's probably the biggest thing is, and, you know, take it to career for a second. You know, you start out with, you know, you need to have some options, you know, you need to have some options on how the game is going to play out for you. Your vision has to be what I want to be a great lawyer. I want to be a great doctor. I want to be a great philosopher, you know, and the sooner you make that a early great decision, parent. a great parent. Yes, Absolutely. Setting that out, you know, and and setting that vision and setting that uh, that thing, you know, I know you don't really hear. I want to be a great lawyer, I, anyway. <laughs> um, but it, it is. I mean, it's, I'm sure people have set out to do that before, right? I wanted to be a great engineer. I really did. I wanted it, and I had no idea how to accomplish that. But I knew that I wanted to be a great one. Um, but, but figure out what that is. You know, they wanted to get rid of the ring, but you're right. If you make that decision early, 
the game, then then you can have the flexibility. You come in, and as a career, you know, just like the endeavor or just like the fellowship, you have things that are going to get stripped off. Those are options that are going to drop as you go through the early adversity. And the er- the early adversity is better than late adversity. You really want to go through. I mean, this is just my opinion. I suppose you can gird yourself for late adversity if you'd like, but I really don't. I think being you don't want to end up at Helm's Deep. Helm's Deep is better in Two Towers than it is in The Return of the King because it's pretty dire. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and and you know, I yeah. So I I think that's I don't know. That's kind of what I can pull away from uh, personally. You know, at least this part of the conversation about game theory about you know, making early decisions. So what's the early decision, right? They decide to play the, they decide to play the runaway game or the weaker route. And so that's going to give them opportunities in the future to do different things with that. They can play a cat and mouse game. They can play a front door, back door game. They can do right. So it leaves them these sub games that they can be able to play. So they don't have to make decisions on which sub game they're going to make. They're going to do going forward. That's another good thing, right? You were talking about kind of analysis paralysis. We don't want to get into that where we're trying to decide like down to the detail. Like it's like you're playing chess. You don't know down to the detail what you're going to do. Like very, very bad analogy because game theory doesn't is not amazing in chess, I don't think. Um, because just because it's such a complex game or it's very hard to execute in chess um, because of how complex the game is. I'm sure it would work well, actually. But the idea that you you want to leave yourself flexibility up front. So we've kind of to to come up with this. Right. We are one big takeaway here from Sauron is don't oversimplify the rules of the game. You need to understand the rules of the game. So you got to study. The, number one is study the game if you're playing out of a weak hand. Number two is write it down. Right. Get it on paper, get it on a whiteboard, get it on a, a, you know, some kind of design app or whatever you're going to use. Get it on PowerPoint, something so that you can see the game, because once you visualize it, you're going to recognize things like, oh, there's a player missing. Like there's a player that needs to come in right here and move things along. And if you don't catch that early on, then that's going to slow down your progress or potentially impede it entirely. And then number three is the early plays are the key. And we'll probably get into that more, the early plays being the key in future game theory episodes, because there's different examples of how you can play those models and submodels games. I like all that. Yeah, I, I think that those are really good, uh, just basic uh, takeaways from uh, from Lord of the Rings, for sure. Um, I'm sure you've got more here. Uh, I don't want to hold you back. So where do you want to go next? Well, I think that as we're trying to to close this here, just talk a little bit about energy maximization. So one last piece is that as you're playing the game, you want to maximize your energy. And I've talked about this before on Wonder Tour, Derek, you've taught me a lot about this, so you're probably the best person to talk about it. But when you're considering the moves that you can make, especially when you want the upfront flexibility to be created in the game, it's in critical to use the right amount of energy you don't want to use too little because then you can find yourself way behind but if you use too much energy up front it's the tortoise and the hare situation oh yeah i'm a poster child for that yeah i mean so maybe that's why i care about it so much now (laughs) but you either find out maybe in the middle of the game which i think i would say a lot of people do uh i'd say very few people uh, figure out how to manage energy early on. Um, if you do, you're someone who has been very fortunate to not only be born into opportunity, but also have, I would say, great mentors around you that have emphasized that to you. 
I'm sure we've all had great mentors. I'm not saying that we haven't had, I had great mentors. Um, but I didn't get taught that specific thing. Um, and the, but why is that important? It's important because you're organic, right? You have limits and we talked about organic limits in Pinocchio, you know, and I'm not going to dwell on that here, but I do want to say that that is why, you know, spending some energy up front so that you can save it later. You have to look at the entire, um, the, I would say the entire game and, <clears throat> and coarsely estimate, coarsely estimate, you know, you don't have to get into calculations because many times when, you know, all the things that we talked about today, they're very qualitative. They're very like, uh, you know, I feel, or this person was happy or this outcome was good. Well, how good? Well, no, we don't, we can't quantify that. Right. So you have to think about if I spend this energy at this point, right. Or if I save up and there is some of that going on in Lord of the Rings where you save up and then you spend the energy at this point. And there are, I would say some parallel threads too. So I don't want to muddy it up too much, but let's think about two, two threads of saving your energy. Um, you know, and you spend that at different points, right? I think Frodo's the poster child for this in the story, which is, you know, he's saved his energy for the final bursts, right? To get across the finish line. And we're talking well, it's, it's like the leaven bread, right? They have the leaven bread. Yeah. They're saving the leaven bread for when they're climbing. They're, they're in Mordor near, uh, uh, uh Meaneth Morgul, right? Where the, where the, that's the, the, green city thing with uh where the ring race are from right the nazgul are from i think it's myth morgul um and they're climbing the cliffs out there and they're they're still like they're eating the last crumbs of the leaven bread and Gollum drops the the bread down right Gollum tries to like sap them of their energy that's you're absolutely right there's a lot of, you can learn energy management i will say is one thing you can really learn from good leaders by watching and you can learn from stories and that's why we're on the wonder tour you can see that like they, they have poor energy management early on here they're gandalf is good at energy management but even aragorn like looking into the two towers like there's kind of they're like mismatching the energy that saruman's bringing to the table here and some of it's like by necessity they just can't get the number of men that they need out there but others of it is just like they they're they're just kind of not they're uneven flowing out there right saruman's kind of beating them in the two towers really he has at least up front they find a way to even the playing field by by drowning the uh drowning the the white tower but either way the uh the <clears throat> what i'm trying to get to here is that in the end they they end up getting the right level of of energy in the Battle of Minas Tirith in The Return of the King. And at the same point, Frodo is really just like giving every last piece of energy, right? He's he's saved his energy. And that's that's something that we can learn from Frodo is he's using, he's kind of pulling out each trick. I mean, even in Fellowship, we can look at one of his tricks that he pulls out, right? He has the Mithril, uh, Mithril chainmail that Bilbo gave him. And they all think he's dead from the cave troll because he's like stabbed him with his spear. And turns out he's got another trick up his sleeve. And that's when they start to, that's when the fellowship starts to realize that hobbits are, are more than they look like. You know, as we kind of round out here, I think we've made some good observations uh, out of Lord of the Rings, uh, Fellowship of the Ring here. So um, are you ready to, are you ready to close I'm it out? Good. I think, I think the main thing to take away is, you know, don't, don't, uh, I would say, misestimate the, uh, or, you know, improperly estimate the personas, you know, um, it, you had all those different 
things you said about Sauron before. And I think those were, I don't want to over overwrite that, but that's definitely one that's sticking out to me is just not understanding the personas in the game. The players uh, is to your detriment for sure. So if you had anything additional to add, um, you can hit us up on the wonder tour on Twitter and drew, I'm going to let you announce what we're going to do next time. Awesome. So we're bringing it back to the NBC sitcoms next week. The beloved classic, The Office. We're going to be continuing our journey into game theory and probably looking into some other stuff as well as we look at how Jim interacts with Michael and Dwight and the rest of the cast in The Office. Awesome. I'm looking forward to that. It's definitely one of my favorite shows. And as I close this out here, remember, all those who wonder are not lost. We will see you next time.